Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined this week by Oluwashina Okaleji in Lagos, Nigeria, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. Out of this week's show, we look ahead to the brand new year and we ask whether things will go as planned with the challenges of COVID-19. We also have the final part of our interview with UK journalist Ed Ahrens and he tells us about his visit to the home area of Liverpool star Mohamed Salah in Egypt. The actually beautiful part of the world and really, really lovely to see. I've never been anywhere like that before in my whole life. Also, Stuart, on the busy time in the English Premier League. That's coming up later. And a happy new year to you. It's our first show of 2021. Ida's away this week, and our guest analyst is Oluwashina Okaleji in Lagos, Nigeria. Hi there, Shina. Hi, Steve. It's good to be back on the show, and happy new year to you. Thanks a lot. Great to have you with us, Sheena, African football expert. Uh, So 2020 was such a tough year for many people, uh, really difficult for football in Africa, with the game coming to a standstill across the continent because of COVID-19. Things started to pick up a bit towards the end of the year, and uh, 2021 has a busy African football calendar. There's the African Nations Championship this month in Cameroon. There are Africa Cup of Nations and World Cup qualifiers. Uh, the Champions League and Confederation Cup, and also the launch of a Women's African Champions League. So it looks good on paper, Sheena, but uh, news from here in Zimbabwe is that uh, when our national team for the African Nations Championship reassembled this week, nine of the 23 players tested positive for COVID-19. So uh, 2021, how do you think it's going to work out with all of these challenges? Well, I wish I have a crystal ball to look into um, 2021 and see how exactly it's going to pan out. It's a bit difficult for anyone to predict what's going to happen. I mean, here we are in January 2020. We all had a promising um, look into the year. You know, we had the Olympics. Everything was going to come. Um, but unfortunately, COVID had other plans. So for 2021, we really don't know what, what is going to happen. Like you said, everything looks good on paper. What you just mentioned now about Zimbabwe put things into perspective because you can tell that CAF says they are ready. Cameroon will have 25% of crowd to seed games across the venues in Douala and elsewhere, but they also are not too sure of what's going to happen. So here we are with everything packed in 2021. The African um, um, Championship, African, African Nations Championship, you have the World Cup qualifier, you have the Afghan qualifiers, you have the women events and everything. But I think it's going to stretch mankind, not just in Africa, but all over the world, because um, with the um, Olympics football events where everyone is looking at Africa to go make um, an impact, you still have um, every other thing to happen in a year that um, everyone is talking that um, Africa don't really have the resources. Is it money? Is it facilities? Is it everything it takes for a COVID-free football event to happen? But it promises to be a challenging one. CAF says they are ready. Cops says they are keen to get football started on the continent. We can only hope for the best. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what's the situation there in Nigeria, uh, Shin, in terms of the domestic league uh, here in Zimbabwe? We're hoping to start in March. Uh, you have kicked off there in Nigeria. Um, well, everything, everything started on the 27th of December. 
And um, it's it the twenty that's the twenty 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 one season. It kicked off on the twenty seventh of December, nine months after the cancellation of fixtures. Um, you know, which led to the end of the season. Um, it's resumed now with some exciting excitement um, locally, albeit behind closed doors. You know, um, due to the COVID procedures and all of that. And the Nigerian football, Nigerian Premier um, Football League um, has actually gone um, and developed an app. Um, which have since been made available to download to enable fans follow the game on their mobile phones. It's one of a kind. It's the first time it's happening in Nigeria. They've struggled in the last five years to get TV deals. They believe that they can get things started. So some people have been getting it while, you know, um, the challenge is still there for the league organizers. Meanwhile, um, in the peak of the bunch, um, when the game started on the 27th of December, um, Quara United stunned former champions, played two United 2-0 away in Joss. In the aftermath of that, Steve, the club that is played to United, they've taken the almost unheard of step of slashing players' wages as a result of the club's defeat at home uh, because they lost 2-0. General manager of the club, Pius N1, says Plato United have actually placed the entire team on half salary following their poor starts, and um, that will be it until the team um, improves. So... Fans are excited. There's a little bit of excitement in the air. Um, they hope that um, the league will continue to be on TV for them to see. But they can only follow that TV um, with the app. Um, you know, when you have mobile in your hands, you have data, which is quite expensive in Nigeria. But of course, it's, it's better than nothing. So if you have the luxury of internet, you can follow the Nigerian Premier League. It's full of excitement. Teams already lose at home. But Plato United have actually shown the way that you can be beaten at home. So that's the excitement of the Nigerian League. <laughs> that's a dramatic start to the season with the slashing of uh, wages there. Uh, so, as you say, if you've got data, it's still possible to follow the action. And uh, I think this uh, televised uh, side of uh, games is going to be big, isn't it, um, in, in many leagues across Africa. And uh, just finally, Sheena, there's going to be a new leader of African football in March when elections take place. And with the current CAF president, Ahmed, serving a FIFA ban, he's out of the race. So... Any clues at this stage as to who might win this one? <laughs> Steve, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Game of Thrones. Um, it's a fantasy um, TV series on TV. It's ended um, about a year ago or two. So in African football's version of Game of Thrones, is it that you win or you are out? Um, you know, um, alliances are being made ahead of the elections in the Moroccan capital, Rabat. So um, in this like I said, Cavs Game of Thrones, it's, it's full of twists, tons, alliances, betrayers. We are going to hear lies and deceit. So um, the season 2021 will be different from 2017. Remember back then there was a giant incumbent in Isayatu and the unknown challenger in Ahmad, Ahmad. But this time around, we have heavyweight. The Senegal Football Federation President, Augustine Tengo, he has been a member of CAF's executive committee since 2019. Senghor is a huge man because he's the mayor of Go, um, Go, an island off the coast of the Senegalese capital, Dakar, and he's president of the top flight side, US Go. So he knows what it takes um, to, to run football. So he's not a novice when it comes to that. You also have um, um, the powerful um, Jack Anuma, a former FIFA executive committee member um, who has been around the block. You understand the politics. And a lot of people are saying there might be alliance between both parties, like they might come together to form one alliance in, for the Francophone region. But then there's Ahmed Yaya. He's the head 
head of the Mauritian Football Federation. I consider him to be the unknown here. Um, since 2001, he's been running the FA in his country. He was named the continent's best football administrator at the 2017 CAF Awards, if you remember. So he's coming with um, a war chest of backing and support, we understand. But for me, I think the one who stands out is the South African billionaire and one of the continent's wealthiest men. Um, that's my Melody Sundown president, Patrice Motsepe. He does not, um, he needs no introduction. His team has won, um, the Cup Champions League twice in recent times. So he knows what it takes to actually, um, put his money where his heart is. So when you ask me to pick, I will go, and say maybe Patrice Mosepe, and then you can not look further than, you know, the alliance of, um, you know, Austin Sengo and Jack Anuma. It depends on who's going to contest, but it's, it promises to be different from 2017 because this time around votes will be divided. Alliances will be tested. People will come and see. But in all of this, Steve, what is important is for them to stop talking politics, but to actually get, um, developments as keyword in their manifesto to think about um, improving the fortunes of African football. Um, there's been so much corruption that has tainted African football in the last couple of years. Uh, we thought Isayatu's allegations and all of that was thin of the past. Hamad, Hamad um, inherited a calf that was battered, but then again, he failed to actually keep the money um, meant for football. Some of them went into individual pockets, and that is why we are where we are now. And that is why he might not be running for the elections. So um, it's difficult to pick, but... I think Mosepe stand a good chance and then you can't look further than the alliance between Jack and Numa and, um, of course, Austin Sengo. He has a long way to go in the race uh, to become the next CAF president. Let's hope whoever wins uh, will lead the game uh, through a spell of growth uh, in Africa. Thanks a lot, Sheena. That's Olawashina Okaleji, our guest analyst this week in Lagos, Nigeria. Well, next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, to the third and final part of our interview with Ed Ahrens. Ed is a journalist with The Guardian newspaper in the UK and author of a book published last year called Made in Africa, The History of African Players in English Football. Well, Ed has some fascinating stories and insights. We've heard about the first African in the English Premier League. That's Zimbabwe's Pete and Lovu. He also took us way back to the three Steen brothers, Brian, Mark and Edwin, who moved from South Africa to England in the 1970s. And Brian Steen became the first African-born player to play for the England national team. That was in 1984. Well, this time, Ed brings it right up to date, and he told Planet Sport Football Africa's Adrian Barnard about Liverpool's Mohamed Salah and a trip to his home community in Egypt. Yeah, it was really amazing experience. I hired a car from Cairo to get there, and it was a bumpy three-and-a-half-hour drive from Cairo to Nagrig, which is in the, the Nile Delta, and it was a actually beautiful part of the world and really, really lovely to see. I've never been anywhere like that before in my whole life, and... Um, you know, compared to the journey that Salah had to take, you know, three and a half hours in a hire car, he used to do this twice a day, you know, there and back, and it was five hours on various buses. So I kind of wanted to experience a little bit what it was like for him when he was a young teenager. But when we got there, um, it was really eye-opening because you could tell that a lot of the people were used to seeing the odd journalists because at the time it was it was Salah mania, really, and, you know, and it's still carrying on. It was during the African Nations Cup in uh, Egypt in 2019. So it was almost like people were expecting us, I suppose. But it was absolutely lovely the way that they welcomed us into their village. We asked to see some of the places that Mohammed grew up in and, you know, and some of the fields that he played in and stuff like that. And they just took us around and we 
played a few uh, bits of football with with some of the kids who were, you know, all obviously dressed in Liverpool shirts. And obviously my Arabic isn't brilliant, but we found that the words Mohammed Salah were almost more than enough. <laughs> when you, you were sort of greeted by the kids and you'd say Mohammed Salah and they'd say it back to you. And it was just a really lovely experience. And spent quite a few hours there speaking to one of his former neighbours as well and some of his family who were just all very welcoming and obviously very proud of such a great representative of their village. And when he was growing up, even as a 12-year-old, apparently he stood out as someone who was really going to make it. Yeah, I think so. We mentioned some of the fathers, Isaiah not being so keen about his sons playing football. And that is a bit of a common bean in Africa, that some families aren't that supportive because they see it as a bit of a risky career path. Uh, we saw that with Sadio Mane, who, who actually had to run away from home because his family weren't so keen on him being a footballer. But in Salah's case, his father really has supported him quite a lot, I think. And, you know... Um, they saw his talent from an early age and even though he had to make the sacrifice of making such a long journey to Cairo to play for a team, you know, it was worth it in the end and he, he made it, although it wasn't a simple path. And he's given back to his community as well, hasn't he? I know he's been very involved in supporting the medical centre in Nagreg. Uh, there's a school there which bears his name and even helped with the sewage treatment works to provide clean water, something he wants to give back to his community. Absolutely, yeah, and that's really striking about, and I mentioned Mane in my last answer, and it's fair enough to put them both together because, you know, both are doing amazing things for Liverpool and for their communities. They're both trying to help the next generation because they understand that it's really important that not just, you know, taking all the adulation of being a footballer and spending their money, they really want to give something back and help the next generation try and achieve, not necessarily being footballers, but, you know, give them a chance of helping them be who they can be. You mentioned just then, Ed, about Mohamed Salah and his parents wanting to focus on education rather than playing football as a 12-year-old. And this is a fairly common pattern across Africa. We find lots of our listeners who contact us and say, I'd like to play football, but my parents want me to study. You can understand that. So let's turn now to Salah's teammate, Liverpool, Nabi Keita, because he had exactly the same thing, didn't he? He wanted to play football as a youngster, but his parents wanted him to study. It is a familiar story, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, I spoke to in uh, in the book, I spoke to the imam in Liverpool where all three players have gone for their Friday prayers for the last couple of years. And it all started with Colo Torre when he was at Liverpool. And, yeah, the imam was very interesting. We talked about culturally, you know, a lot of Muslim parents don't particularly want their kids to get into football. But I think the success of so many Muslim players in the Premier League is really helping break down a few barriers like that. And, you know, the imam now goes to Anfield, well, when fans could go, you know, hopefully that's going to be back soon. But he was a regular at Anfield and he said that people barely bat an eyelid at him when he goes in his religious dress anymore. And I think that's a good sign of progress um, because, you know, football is for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. That's a lovely picture, that, isn't it? And when Cater came over to Liverpool, he joined in June 2018, but there was an agreement for him to join almost a year before. And there was a lovely gesture made to him by uh, Stephen Gerrard about the shirt, wasn't there? That's right, yeah. He was anointed as Stephen Gerrard's successor, basically. And it was a lot of pressure on his shoulders. And he, uh, well, he, he was invited into, this was just before he signed, he uh, was with his father. And uh, Stephen Gerrard presented him with the number eight shirt that he was going to be wearing, has been wearing since he arrived in England. And uh, yeah, it's still uh, an unfolding story, really, with Naby Keita, because we're yet to see him consistently be the player that I think uh, certainly Jurgen Klopp knows that he can be. I think he's got a lot of faith in him. 
and um, unfortunately he's just recently got injured again but um, let's hope that at some point he will really show what he's all about because um, yeah he's got he's got a lot of ability and finally for now Ed I'd just like to ask your thoughts really on the future of African players in the English Premier League we've got some players at the moment you've talked about the guys who won the golden boot between them we've got some good goal scorers got some excellent defenders and also in the African continent we've got loads and loads of youngsters who are desperately keen to play football in the Premier League themselves do you think over the coming years we'll be seeing more African players in the Premier League will the pathways for them to join the Premier League become easier or are there still going to be struggles ahead yeah, I think we're seeing every year that it's becoming a little bit easier uh, for... Well, easier is maybe the wrong word, but it's becoming more possible for African players to come to the Premier League at younger ages. I think that's the key thing. In previous years, it's maybe taken a few seasons under your belt playing in different European leagues to, to finally get a chance in the Premier League. But I think that managers are starting to see the, the potential of players or, you know, that's fully known by now. But also, you know, there's more and more pathways for players uh, coming from different European leagues. For example, you know, of late um, in Austria, uh, Red Bull Salzburg has been a real development centre for African players. And I think we're going to see quite a few pl- of the current team there, like somebody like Patson Daka from Zambia and um, and then somebody who's gone to RB Leipzig from Salzburg, like somebody like uh, Amadou Haidara from Mali. Those kind of players, I can see them coming to England and, you know, only sort of 22. So I think that's very encouraging. And the other thing to say, I think, is that there's so many different countries in Africa that are producing players. And, you know, we're seeing players from less heralded countries like the Gambia, for instance, with the two guys who did so well at Bologna last season. Um, Amazing stories how they ended up there, you know, being refugees, or one of them anyway. And... um, you know, there's so many different chances now that African players can potentially, you know, keep coming to the Premier League and other European leagues and excelling. I'll tell you what you're going to endure yourself to our Gambian listeners. So, yeah, right, well, let's say, let's say then <laughs> Mr. Juara, who did very well last season, uh, scored the winning goal against Inter, I think it was, for, for Bologna. And yeah, there's, there's plenty of players coming through from there as well. I remember speaking to a journalist when I did an article about it, and he told me that they had better players than their neighbours, Senegal. So, that was quite a claim. So we'll see in the next few years how that develops. Well, great stuff. That's Ed Aarons speaking to Planet Sport Football Africa's Adrian Barnard. Ed's book is called Made in Africa, The History of African Players in English Football. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And still to come, a steward talks about Arsene Wenger's views on the current Arsenal manager, Mikel Arteta. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA and on our website, planetsport.tv. We have a blog reflecting on 2020. Uh, to read that, go to our website, planetsport.tv and click on the blog section. And on social media this week, we're asking, what are your football hopes in 2021? It's a brand new year. Are you dreaming maybe of being allowed to go back to the stadium to watch your favourite team? Are you hoping for your favourite team in your country or in Europe to win trophies? Uh, tell us, what are your football hopes this year? You can send a message on WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. We'll go to our Facebook page, Planet Sport Football Africa, and post a comment there. 
Well, let's go to our European football expert Stuart Weir in the UK now. And after a busy few days, Liverpool still lead the way in the English Premier League, but、uh, not much in it, Stuart. Steve, we end 2020 with Liverpool on top of the table, three points clear of Manchester United, but United have a game in hand. And as you say, a busy period after Christmas saw all the Premier League clubs play twice in just five days. Well, at least that was the plan. But unfortunately, Manchester City's game against Everton and Fulham's against Tottenham had to be postponed, as City and Fulham were having an outbreak of COVID in the squad. But one fascinating thing is, of the 18 games played over Christmas, nine were drawn. This meant that the only three clubs to register two wins, Everton, Leeds, and Arsenal, got extra benefit for their six points. Liverpool drew both their Christmas games against West Brom and Newcastle, and now if you compare last year, up to February 2020, Liverpool had gone on a run of 36 games in which they dropped only two points, but since then they've played 27 games and dropped 28 points. Liverpool may still be top of the league, but they don't look the team that they were a year ago. Manchester United beat Wolves 1-0 with a goal. In the 93rd minute, to put them second, and this was the 18th consecutive away game in which United have scored in the second half. And isn't our manager Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, who knows a little bit about scoring late goals, having got the winner in the Champions League final in the 93rd minute himself? Steve, you'll love this one. When Aston Villa beat Crystal Palace 3-0, despite Tyrone Mings. First half red card. This was the first time a team with ten men had won a Premier League game by three goals since 2011, when Chelsea beat Swansea City. Now, data specialist Grace Note have analysed 288 Premier League games with crowds, followed by 190 played since June 2020 with small or no crowds. And a couple of interesting things have emerged. There have been, as we've noted, less home wins and more away wins than you might expect. For example, 30% of games last season were away wins, but without spectators, 37%. And the most fascinating thing for me is that without spectators, away teams are being awarded more free kicks than home teams. Whereas normally it was always suspected that there was a little bit of、uh, home team balance, and the statistics would seem to suggest that that has disappeared without spectators. Well, very interesting that showing how crowds can have an influence on referees. And Stuart, you've been reading the autobiography of Arsene Wenger, the former Arsenal manager, and he writes about the current manager, Mikel Arteta. Yes, of course, Wenger was manager of Arsenal, 1996 to 2018. His autobiography is called "My Life in Red and White," acknowledging the strange fact that the teams that he managed—Nancy, Monaco, Grampus Eight in Japan, and Arsenal—all played in red and white. Something I hadn't spotted before. And as you say, one of the more interesting things in the book is some of his comments on individuals. On the current Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta, Wenger writes, as an Arsenal player, Arteta was passionate, intelligent. He had ardor and determination of youth, and I don't believe he's lost that. For me, he was an invaluable go-between with the team. And as a manager, 
The values, spirit and style that was characteristic of Arsenal can once more come to the fore, and he has the experience and the desire that is needed to revive the soul of the club. Banger also had some interesting things to say about Mesut Ozil, who is of course currently out of favour at Arsenal while taking a big salary. Ozil is an artist who feels football through his skin and his soul. He needs to be constantly encouraged. He needs to feel close to the coach, to have a relationship of trust with the coach. Being hard on him doesn't work. He's an artist, and like all artists, he needs to feel supported in his creativity. He has a feel for passing and an exceptional sense of timing when he passes. There is something magical and simple about Ozil's playing style. The Premier League is sometimes like a train going at 200 kilometres an hour, and Ozil doesn't go at that speed, but you always have great affection for his artistry. I thought that was really a fascinating analysis and perhaps shows why Ozil has struggled with some other managers. Finally, a comment on his great rival Alex Ferguson. I always enjoyed our rivalry with Manchester United and the tension at every match. Alex Ferguson was ready to die for his club and I for mine. It was him or me. And this extreme rivalry can be explained by our competitiveness. There was always huge mutual respect a classic rivalry. Of course there were many clashes, angry scenes between us, because it's not just a game. It wasn't for show. This was our lives, our passion, our utter dedication to football. We were totally committed, and each of us thought only of victory. Well, fascinating. Those Wenger-Ferguson clashes could be very intense indeed. More on Arsene Wenger next week, as he also reflected on his time at the Gunners. And as Stuart, 2020 had plenty of controversy over the VAR and handball, and we can expect more this year, I'm sure. And David Ellery, the head of refereeing at FIFA, has spoken about these issues. Yes, David Ellery is the technical director of the International Football Association Board, which oversees the laws. Going back, Ellery was a Premier League referee for 11 years and refereed 78 international matches as well. But most of the time he refereed at weekends while working full-time as a geography teacher in London. In a recent interview with the London Times, he gave his views on some of the game's talking points. As far as handball goes, Ellery believes there is genuine disagreements among football people as to what constitutes handball. And he made an interesting comparison. He says that at the moment, every time there's a change in lockdown laws, half the people think it's too strong and half don't go far enough. And he thinks it's the same with handball. He added, with hindsight, it was a mistake to try to come up with a precise definition of handball, but a request had come from the football industry for more guidance on handball. The attempt to make it clearer has unfortunately been interpreted too rigidly in some countries, and some leagues... I won't name them, referees are frankly being too rigid and inflexible with any time the ball hits an arm being seen as a foul. This is not what football wants, or what the law intended, and Ellery talked about referees sometimes losing the spirit of the law and being too rigid. He was then asked, so what exactly is handball? And he said there's three types of handball. First of all, deliberate handball is always penalised. Secondly, if you score or gain an advantage in scoring when the ball directly or 
deliberately or accidentally hit your hand or arm, that's handball. The third area, he said, which is the one which he thinks has caused most of the problem, where there's perhaps too much inflexibility, when referees have to make a judgment if the arm or hand which makes contact with the ball is in a reasonable position. Can we justify a player's movement through what he was doing at the time? And we certainly don't want, as Ray said, players running around like penguins or with their hands in their pockets. Some decisions, Ellery suggested, whatever way the decision goes, half the world will criticise. Another interesting point that he brought up was the balance between consistency and common sense. He says that some coaches are saying all we want is consistency, but others are saying, look, no, 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 we've got to have a common sense approach. And common sense and consistency, in his words, are not happy bedfellows. Interestingly, he said, the only way to stop the handball debate is to turn into the hockey foot law. In hockey, it's a foul if the ball touches the foot, whether accidental or deliberate. But then, Ellery adds with enthusiasm, I think, no one wants that in football. We don't want to see that kind of rigidity. Football, he says, wants referees to apply more judgment, but I suspect a year from now, the same people will criticise the lack of consistency. It's not an easy one to get right. Yes, the controversy and differences of opinion sure to continue in this new year. Thanks, Stuart. Well, that's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from Olawashina Okoleji in Lagos, and Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.